This is the Coast and Country podcast from the BBC. You can find the terms and conditions on our website at bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. Today you can hear Open Country with Helen Mark. We can see there's a kind of haze when you look down towards the horizon. Um, There's moisture in the air. The sun's not quite high enough for any sizable thermals to get going. Those are what give rise to the cumulus clouds, which are the fair weather clouds. They're the little fluffy ones, look like sheep sort of (laughs) tripping along in the breeze. I mean, I, I think later on today... Tell me what you think, Liz, that later on today there will be some uh, cumulus clouds building up. Yeah, absolutely. I think once the sun gets to work, there's a lot of moisture on the ground. It'll start to lift up. And, and as Gavin said, it's quite hazy as you look out. And I think the wind's picked up, so we won't see any kind of fog developing today. But there's definitely a lot of humidity at lower level. I've come into this incredibly ancient landscape that has been occupied by man since the Iron Age. It was a fort and then the Romans came and then the Anglo-Saxons and the Normans and we're in this Motton Bailey now. And I'm with two people who have been just standing together for a matter of seconds and they have launched in to the subject of the weather. (laughs) We do it, don't we, all the time. Absolutely, we love to talk about it, don't we? This is Old Serum this wonderful uh, Motton Bailey Castle and we are within the, the inner bailey of it and with Gavin Preterpinney and Liz Bentley. Gavin from the Cloud Appreciation Society and Liz, a meteorologist and an obsessive about the weather. That's right. Yes, and founder of the Weather Club. That's right, yes. And I brought you here because I want us to climb up onto the top of the embankments here and I want to look out across Wiltshire and I want to continue this topic of the weather because that's what this week's Open Country is about the weather. We are so obsessed. Everybody talks about the weather, whether they know anything about it or not. It's what links us all as human beings. So I think if we go up this way. When did you start becoming so into the weather, Liz? (laughs) Well, I think for me, I grew up in Yorkshire on top of the Pennines and the weather was always that bit more extreme in in that location. And my mum will often recall a story when I was even just a few months old and she put me out in the garden one beautiful summer's afternoon for a sleep in the pram and within about half an hour the, the sky became as dark as night and there was this almighty hailstorm with hailstones the size of golf balls and she ran out into the garden to rescue me and by the time she got there my pram was about half full with these giant hailstones and, and so I think it was just ingrained into me really even at that age you know that the weather was going to have an impact on my life. What about you Gavin? I mean you've, you've become so well known as, as Mr Cloud really the man who adores clouds and wants us all to look upwards and gaze at the clouds although today we're going to be a bit disappointed because it's how I like it it's this gloriously blue winter sky well I mean clear blue skies are nice after a prolonged period of um, you know overcast skies um, because I like change and this is the great thing I think it's one reason why we're so obsessed with the weather in this country is because it's so varied you just don't know from one day to the next unless you look at the weather forecast you don't know what it's going to bring and that to me is Partly is greatly due to the clouds. They bring this sense of surprise each day. They bring a sense of variety, change, drama, a sense of motion, a sense of architecture to the sky. What a wonderful way to think of clouds, because we often think of clouds as, oh, it's cloudy. Well, it depends how old you are. When you're young, I don't think many people do think like that. Young kids uh, look at clouds and they 
They see them as slightly transfixing. There's a certain stage that every child goes through, it seems to me, when they wonder about clouds. They look up at them and they wonder what they're made of, why they stay up there, what it would be like to sit on one. You know, and, and yet, as we get older, we see them as nothing more than you know, grounds for complaint. Unless you sort of, like you do, Gavin, gather the beauty and the poetry of them all again. To me, it seems a good thing for us, you know, from a psychological point of view, to find beauty and, you know, positive aspects of the mundane, the everyday and our surroundings. And, you know, it's very, very easy when you're used to something always being there. You're used to these clouds always being in the sky. It's very, very easy to become blind to what's surprising or what's stimulating or what's kind of glorious about them. And maybe our own personal interpretation of clouds, you know, who you are, where you've come from, it's a very personal thing, the weather. It is, and I think uh, Gavin touched on it a little bit earlier. We, it, it kind of can have a real effect on our mood. And, you know, we get up in the morning, beautiful, stunning day today, and it really lifts your spirit when you get out of bed. It makes you want to get up and get going. So the weather can have a real impact on how we feel as well. Are we the only nation who continually bangs on about the weather? We are renowned for that, but there are many other places. I mean, you, you just take the weather that's happened around the world in the last uh, year or two. You know, we've had some real extremes, some real records being broken on all, what felt like an almost daily basis of droughts and heat and extreme cold and flooding. And, you know, it, it impacts on so many people's lives around the world that, you know, I think it's not just a national obsession here in the UK. It is, you know, an international obsession. And it ain't going to change, is it? If we're getting more, it seems we're getting more extremes of weather. And, you know, some would argue that climate change might keep that going. I think if you live and work outdoors, you feel the weather. You really understand what's happening. It's so important. I mean, without the weather, our green and pleasant land, without wind and rain in particular, we wouldn't have a green and pleasant land. We wouldn't be able to use the land in the ways that we do for farming, for agriculture. It just wouldn't happen. Things would be different. And moving forward, things we will have to adapt, I guess, as our climate changes, the things that we can grow. In a positive sense, we'll be able to to grow things that we never used to be able to grow before, but our traditional gardens, our traditional agriculture will have to change. You have a look there, you see that's the amount of rain we've had this month. Okay, now you've just got a tiny little notebook and a well sharpened pencil, which you would need because the lines you write your data on are very narrow. <laughs> and this is your record of rainfall so far in January. Correct. Okay. And where do you get these figures from and how do you do that? You t take me to the point where this is collated. Right. Um, we're about in a sort of fairly northerly part of Wiltshire. And this is Easton's farm. Yeah. And I'm with Stephen Horton. And we've come out onto his, well, sort of your front lawn a little bit. And what do we do now? We're just <laughs> going to see what rainfall we had yesterday. Okay. And there's so a cylinder the sticking off. out of the grass. Made of copper, is it? It's a copper rain gauge mm -hmm. funnel that goes into a receptacle. And we just pour that in. Sort of a glass test tube. But it's, measurements it's on the side. Measurements on the side. So that's nine and a half millimetres. Mm -hmm. Pour that out. Remember the number. Nine and a half. Ooh. Plus... Ten. Ten. And we've got another 1.1. 1. 1. 
So that's 19.6 mil of rainfall. Of rainfall. That's just in one day. <coughs> Which is basically from 8 o'clock yesterday morning till 8 o'clock this morning. Right. And you just record that quite simply in the notebook yeah. and then you take it back and you log it all on the computer. How long have the Horton family been doing this? About 20 odd, 25 years. Why? <laughs> we had a very good friend in the village and he'd always done it for the Met Office and when he got to Edelie to do it, my father took it on as he was interested in in how much rain we're getting. <laughs> what, just personally? Because yeah, he was yeah. a farmer? And because he was a farmer and... Uh, the amount of rain that we have is of interest because if you look at the rain that we've had this month, within reason, with the law of averages, with the amount of rain we've had there, you can virtually say for the next half of the month, it's a very high likelihood that it could be dry. And how useful is it for you, though, in what you do, though, to know that? Primarily because when we're making hay or silage in the spring, it's extremely important for when I mow the grass to when I pick it up. You can only make good silage with dry grass going in in dry conditions. But if you mow the grass when it's fed, but then rains for three days, you've got very bad silage. But if you get the conditions right, you can see your window to do it. And how much does that affect the whole production of the farm and the profit that you make? (laughs) Basically, if you make good silage, you can produce cheap milk. If you make poor silage you then got to add concentrates that cost you twice, three times as much money. So it has a very practical use for you in this particular landscape. You need It helps you to know what's happening in this it gives, landscape. It, it gives us an indication of what's going on. But also in the area, it will vary from one end of the farm to the other. Why is that? Because of the undulations of the downs and the location of the fields and aspect. We record every day, but then I record a total for each month, and then I put it onto a spreadsheet so we can look back over the years to see any differences that may have occurred. And it's funny how if you get a very wet year, it sometimes then gets a slightly dry year that follows it. Yes. I know my father always said it, nature always compensates. You know, if we get a good harvest, OK, it might be nice for me, but it's like if we get a very good grass silage harvest... Often it means we've got a hard winter coming because we actually physically need it. And like this year, we're all beginning to get very worried now that our stocks of grass or silage are going to run out before we go turn out. Mm-hmm. That's when the cattle go out. Yes. But there are indications that I think the spring this year is going to be early. Look what we have. Now, does that not gladden the heart? It does indeed. And the snowdrops just coming up. And they are called the Fair Maids of February, and we can understand why. And they are the most beautiful flowers, but it's said you should never pick them and take them indoors because that is meant to be extremely unlucky. Leave them where they are. Yes. Pretty little white nodding heads. Mm. Perfect. Under the trees yes. here. I've come to Avebury, and I'm striding out across the grass, and alongside me here we have the wonderful stone circles that this village is so famous for. And I'm with Ruth Binney. Uh, Ruth is an author. But particularly about things to do with the weather. It's so much part of our psyche, talking about the weather, trying to understand it. And that's something that you're quite interested in and how far back that goes. 
I am, and you can imagine the people who erected these stones and who settled down here and maybe started to farm 5,000 years ago, just wondering how they were going to predict the weather and how life was going to turn out for them. And it's no surprise that they looked to the natural world to see how it might predict what was to come. And that that sense of trying to understand the weather became integrated into our very language. Yes, and there are literally hundreds and hundreds of weather sayings. Well, of course, we all know the red sky at night, shepherd's delight. We do. Is there any truth in it? Yes, there's lots of truth in it. Particularly when the weather comes from the west, the light is scattered as the weather approaches and as the clouds pass by and the weather clears, you get a red sky. You have spent a lot of time gathering sayings yes, um, from traditional folklore, really, and sort of collating them together and trying to see if these sayings of ours have any truth in them. What are your favourites, then? I don't know whether you can hear the rooks, but uh, a favourite one is that uh, when the rooks build high, it's going to be a fine summer. Well, that may well be, but these rooks, who are busy very early this year, they're probably actually repairing last year's nests, so they're not very good predictors. What about ones that you really could honestly put your faith in? One really good one is that spring is sooner recognised by plants than by men, and also women, of course, because if you look around and you look carefully, it looks now as if it's deep, deep winter, but you can see things beginning to just come to life. Plants are very interesting because they can actually sense the increase in the day length. So as soon as we're past the solstice and the days start increasing in length, the plants think, ha, yes, this is the time when I should be beginning to swell and to grow. Yes, so do we as human beings then learn to read those signs? We do, but I don't think maybe we're as sensitive as plant world and not to the animal world. The animals have to be careful because there is a very interesting saying about the blackbird. If the blackbird sings before Christmas, she will cry by Candlemas. And Candlemas is coming up very soon. It's February the 2nd. And the idea of that is, is that if the blackbird starts breeding too early, it will be too cold, she'll lose her chicks. So we can take the early call of the blackbird... Mid- as a bad sign that we're going to have some bad weather coming in. And it's interesting you put it round the Candlemas, that religious festival, that, you know, very strongly seasonally based festival. Yes, February the 2nd, it was a very important day in the old church year and a day that is related to various other sayings. And one very good one is that the shepherd would rather see the wolf in his fold than the sun at Candlemas. Because the idea of that is that if it's sunny at Candlemas, then winter will continue for another six weeks. It's the same, really, as Groundhog Day in America. And the badger is like the American groundhog, that if it is seen on Candlemas and the sun's shining, then we know that winter is far from over. So these happenings have become part of language, haven't they? About weather forecasting. (laughs) Yes. Yes. You must have had the most tremendous amount of fun gathering all these sayings. As a family, we have been watching cows for decades. The idea being everyone says, oh, cow's lying down, it's going to rain. Well, I would say that. Well, in fact, that is not true because cows stand up, they eat, and then they sit down and chew the cud. 
but cows are herd animals, so what one does, the rest nearly always do. Sheep are better. Oh. Sheep will turn their back to the wind, and it's said that shepherds could predict storms by the way their, their sheep behave. But if sheep jump around the field and all looking in different directions, you can be pretty sure that the weather's going to stay fine. I shall keep a watchful eye out from now on. <laughs> I won't need the Met Office anymore after meeting you, Ruth. <laughs> right, let's get down here. So about mm-hmm. so 20 or 25 feet down to the bottom. And then we have to climb out the other side again. We're just on the outskirts of Avebury Village and I'm with Matthew Oates, who is a conservation advisor with the National Trust. And we're just scrambling up the other side of this ancient ditch. <sighs> Let's get into the sunshine. It's always a good way of surviving winter is to use winter sunshine effectively. So relish the sunlight when it's with us. Mm. And just think back to just a few weeks ago when almost this was like a glaciated landscape. We're halfway through uh, our winter and um, so far the vagaries of the great British uh, winter have served us up with the... um, coldest December on record for the whole of the UK, but by the standards of us soft southerners down here in Wiltshire, we had we had it quite surprisingly bad. Uh, we had ten days of sub-zero temperatures, with um, night temperatures plummeting to minus ten and indeed beyond. Uh, we had three or four snowfalls, depending on where you, where you are in Wiltshire, and seven glorious white Christmas days of tobogganing let me <laughs> at it. Uh, and really the highlight uh, actually for me and many other people who feed garden birds is actually the garden birds they were absolutely staggering well this is what i want to talk to you about Mm. matthew is that when you have a winter like that which is so severe is it all bad news for wildlife or do you do you see it as maybe having any benefits it's a famously difficult question to answer, but basically there were always winners and losers. That was good weather for things that actually need to hibernate effectively and not get disturbed midwinter by mild, unseasonally mild days. But at the same time, if you're a bird and you've got to eat a lot just to keep alive and keep warm, it was tough. When you think back over the year of 2010, did you see things happening through the year um, in terms of weather, say the very dry weather we had in April and May having any effect on the wildlife or showing its effect later on in the year? One thing that did happen is because of the dryness of May and especially June, the grass didn't grow. But if you're a small plant and you, and you don't get swamped by grass, it's actually really good for you. So what's appeared then? Well, it was a good year for orchids, we think, uh, certainly here on the Chalk Downs, um, but uh, also um, very close by at uh, Cheryl uh, Down and uh, Calston Coombs, just uh, east of Carn here in Wiltshire, um, we actually at last got some germination of juniper, um, which is an incredibly neurotic shrub. We've no idea, really, what stimulates its germination. It may be that dry springs are actually good for it at times, It may be that wet springs and summers with strong grass growth are actually bad for it. Next year, of course, it could be a completely different story. That's the amazing thing about the weather across this nation. (laughs) Yeah, our, our climate is so incredibly variable. It's all over the place. But we just have to cope with whatever the weather throws at us. I think 
we all need to develop a strategy for getting ourselves through the great British winter. I use winter sunshine. I sit in it, I walk in it, I get it on my eyelids and it keeps me going. And I think it's also really important in winter to actually get out, get out and walk, get on a mountain bike and go biking, things like that, and see what, what and appreciate what's going on in terms of the wildlife around it. There's a huge flock of, of field fairs chattering away um, in the, the hawthorn bushes just over there at the moment. And behind us, we've got rooks. They're starting to think about spring, their nesting season which really begins down here in, um, in mid-February. So, yeah, 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 there's a lot to, to do. A lot to, don't, don't cogitate. <laughs> there is one place in Wiltshire that you really have to visit before you leave the county, and I'm just walking towards it now. This is a first-time experience for me, actually, and it's really quite tremendous because I'm walking up towards Stonehenge and we've been allowed special permission to actually go within the stone circle and I can see now these great tablets huge rectangular pieces of stone set up on their edge and some with the caps on in this very open Wiltshire landscape now quite what Stonehenge has to do with forecasting the weather I'm hoping to find out about walking alongside me is David Rowan who's an astrologer hello we just walk towards the stones now. Um, this ancient monument, but still with the throb of traffic from two fairly significant roadways. You're always reminded that you're in the 21st century. You can't <laughs> quite escape. Okay. So we stepped off the path, walking across the grass, towards these um, leviathans of stone, towering now above my head, draped with lichens the top, and the greys and the yellows and the greens, um, stones that are tumbled to the ground, and then the inner circle of smaller stones. How, though, is Stonehenge connected to weather forecasting? We don't know if Stonehenge was connected with weather forecasting specifically, but we do know that it could have been used to calculate seasons and the timing of seasons. And that would have been very important if you have a culture that relies on agriculture and timing and winter forecast and winter harvest and things like this. And behind you, you can see a stone on its own outside of the circle. Quite minuscule compared to the rest. That's right. And that's called one of the station stones. And there are four of those. Um, On this diagram, you can see there's the round circle of Stonehenge and there are two station stones on little mounds there. And that's one of the ones that you're actually looking at. And there's another one over there. And if these are connected up to form a rectangle, you find that from corner to corner across the uh, oblong, that is exactly the axis for the sunrise and sunset at certain times of year, which is uh, the beginning of February, the beginning of May, the beginning of August, and the beginning of October. So um, I think modern terms for these might be Candlemas, May Day, the Harvest Festival. And at 51 degrees north, the summer solstice and midwinter sunset axis is exactly perpendicular to this oblong. So if you move Stonehenge, say, four degrees north of latitude or four degrees south of latitude, this alignment wouldn't be there. The information about these seasons was vital because they knew at that point when it would be best to plant the crops? Presumably, yes. So a great monument created to mark the passing of time maybe as one of its purposes as one of its purposes certainly. yeah it's actually um, suggested 
that uh, what you see at the moment has been shot blasted by about 5,000 years of rain and sleet and hail. And uh, some estimates say that uh, they would have diminished by about eight inches to a foot in every dimension. So the, we- the weather has also played a role in sculpting uh, what you can see here to a certain yeah, extent as well. holes and, and fissures that, and, that's and right. the it's whole been texture struck by lightning of, of, of and all the kinds stone. of things. Yes. Yes. The surrounding area is so open and wide and these uh, stones stand um, on not on a mound but on possibly the highest part of this particular area. We are so close to these stones. We're looking up at a cloud-filled sky and, a, and fading light. You know, it's, a, it's, it's hugely atmospheric. Mm. And here we are, you know, so typically British, discussing the weather. <laughs> <laughs> but it's important to us, isn't it? Because our survival used to depend on it. And modern agriculture can plant in the winter, you know. But before that, it was, the ground was hard. And so whole communities could thrive or fall, depending on whether or not they harvested at the right time. So being able to have portents of auspicious moments to be able to get your community to be able to plant at the right time or to harvest at the right time it was a very important thing to do. <laughs>